In this short presentation, I will be refuting, by far, the most important doctrine in the Catholic Church. It is sometimes called apostolic succession. First, let me explain the term from a Catholic perspective. It is the view which says that the successors of the Twelve Apostles, from their time to the present day, have inherited the spiritual authority and power that was given to them by the Apostles who, in turn, received their spiritual authority from Jesus Christ. They believe that the twelve apostles knowingly passed down their apostolic powers to the men that succeeded them. They believe it is this power that gives them the right to claim that their traditions should be taken with equal reverence to the Bible, which it says in the 1994 Catechism. In paragraph 82 it says, as a result, the Roman Catholic Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. The main non-Catholic view of this is that the power given to the Apostles was mainly for the writing of the oral teachings of Jesus down in what became the New Testament and that there is no evidence in the Bible or any other reason to believe that this particular power of the apostles was expected to be passed down, or would have even needed to be. So those are the two basic views. The question is, did the apostles pass down their apostle power to the ministers that they appointed after them? Here is some of what will be covered in this presentation. Why is this important? why the Bible must be used to prove this particular issue, what Bible verses are used to support the Catholic position, refutations of apostolic succession, common questions like, would Christ have abandoned his church, or wouldn't it cause chaos if there was no Catholic church? And finally, who is the real successor to Jesus Christ? So why is this important? Quite simply, if apostolic succession is not true, then the Catholic church is not true either. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Senior Fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, one of the United States' leading authorities on the papacy in the Church, said, The full reality of the Church does not exist without apostolic succession. He said this on Our Sunday Visitor's Catholic Almanac in page 193. It should also be noted that if there is no real power that has been passed down from apostle to priest through ordination, then none of the sacraments done by the priests are valid, because he has no power different than any other man. There is no grace to affect the Eucharist, nor is he able to forgive your sins. Not only that, but all of the doctrines of the Catholic Church that cannot be found in the Bible, by their own admission, like infant baptism, prayer to Mary, veneration of icons, penance, and many more, are all totally invalid, because they don't have any more authority to pronounce dogmas than you or I do. So the stakes are pretty high as we begin this investigation of apostolic succession. So let's start with why this one doctrine of apostolic succession must be proven from the Bible, even if no other Catholic doctrine has to be. Because the only reason that Catholics feel it's okay to believe doctrines not taught in the Bible, like infant baptism or prayer to Mary, is because they believe apostolic succession exists. So, they believe that the person that told them it was okay to do these things has the authority to do so. 
So, if the Catholic Church wants to have the authority to be on equal footing with the Bible, as it says on paragraph 82 of the 94 Catechism, then it must show from the Bible that this power was passed down to them first. I will now go through the Bible verses used by the Catholic Church to prove this doctrine and discuss each one. I tried very hard to find all the verses that were used in its defense in order to give this doctrine a fair hearing. These are not the verses that I cherry-picked because I felt that they were easily refuted. The fact is, there were surprisingly few verses used to prove this doctrine, and these are the best of the best. The most widely cited passage, the flagship, if you will, is in Acts chapter 1. This is just after Jesus ascended into heaven. He told the apostles not to do any ministry until they received the power from the Holy Spirit, which at this point they had not. I'm going to read the entire passage from Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26 from the Catholic New American Bible. During those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. There was a group of about 120 persons in the one place. He said, My brothers, a scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was the guide for those that arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and was allotted a share in this ministry. He bought a parcel of land with the wages of his iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his inside spilled out. This became known to everyone who lived in Jerusalem, so that the parcel of land was called in their language, Akadalma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his encampment become desolate, and may no one dwell in it, and may another take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that one of the men who accompanied us the whole time the Lord Jesus came and went among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day which he was taken up from us, become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also known as Justice, and Matthias. They prayed, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry from which Judas turned away to go to his own place. Then they gave lots to them, and the lots fell upon Matthias, and he was counted with the eleven apostles. So this is supposed to prove that the office of apostle was supposed to be passed down through the generations. They say that replacing Judas when he died shows that all of the apostles should be replaced when they die. But this is not what Peter is saying at all. In fact, Peter goes to great lengths here to articulate why they must replace Judas particularly. He begins by saying the scripture had to be fulfilled noting that Judas didn't spoil God's plan at all. He actually fulfilled it. He shows that God knew all along that Judas would betray Jesus. And Peter references the many places in the Old Testament where it prophesied the betrayal of Judas. And one of those places is in Psalms 41, verse 9, where it mentions he will be betrayed by a close friend who eats with him. And to go even further, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 actually mentions the price will be 30 pieces of silver. Not only that, but that the money would go to buy a field from a potter, all of which had just come true in Peter's day. This would have been very interesting to them all. Now, the interesting part is that Peter goes on to mention two additional prophecies, one of which has not come true yet. For it is written in the book of Psalms, he said, Let his encampment become desolate, and may no one dwell in it, and... May another take his office. 
Peter is saying that everything has been fulfilled about Judas except for them to replace him. It seems obvious that these prophecies are specific to Judas. Words like his in let his encampment be desolate or make another take his office seem not to even allow the possibility of this being about all apostles, especially since the context of all these prophecies is talking about an evil person who has betrayed the king. But while I think this is the plain meaning of this passage and that this is a one-time event, and has no relevance to proving that all the apostles should be replaced, it is by no means the only reason why this passage cannot be about apostolic succession as the Catholics see it. There is, in fact, a very good reason that the apostles needed to be a complete twelve before they began their ministry, which I'm going to get into now. But first, it's important to notice that at this point, they had not even begun their apostolic ministry yet as they had not been given the power that Christ had promised them in verse 8 of this chapter, which wouldn't happen until later on at Pentecost. So at this point, they didn't have any power to pass down to Matthias or anyone else in the first place. So to begin to explain why there needed to be a full 12 apostles before Pentecost, hence the reason that Judas had to be replaced at this time, and another reason that the Catholic interpretation of this verse is wrong, I will start by reading a simple verse from the Catholic New American Bible that is talking about Christ's church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the holy ones and the members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the capstone. Through him, the whole structure is held together and grows into a temple sacred in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The first thing I would like for you to notice is that if the apostles are the foundations of the church, then they logically should not have successors. Because a foundation is a non-successive structure. It is the base upon which the rest of the building is constructed. A foundation does not have successors, nor does it develop over time. It is built at the start of a project, and care must be taken to build it very well. And that is why Jesus trained the apostles for three years to be a solid foundation. And that's also why, when replacing this apostle, Peter made sure that they picked someone that had been through the exact same training as they had. He says, Therefore, it is necessary that one of the men who accompanied us the whole time the Lord Jesus came and went among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day on which he was taken up from us, become with us a witness to the resurrection. So they had to be with them the full three years, and what was their job? They were to go out and be a witness to the resurrection. You can understand the foundational structure of the twelve apostles by studying the twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. This is one of the reasons that there had to be exactly twelve apostles. That is to fulfill the most ancient prophetic model. Just as the twelve tribes of Israel were the foundations for the Old Testament, the twelve apostles were the foundations of the new. And while there were others that were called apostles in the Bible, the requirement for them was that they had to be called directly and personally by Jesus Christ, as Paul was. But it is clear that the twelve apostles had a particularly special ministry, which we see confirmed in Revelation 21, verse 14, 
where it speaks of them being memorialized in heaven as the foundations. It says, The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This is especially interesting because a few verses later it describes twelve gates with the names of the twelve tribes on each gate. Clearly the Bible intends to parallel these two sets of twelves with the Old and New Covenants. Another thing that has been overlooked by many scholars is that this event in Acts chapter 1 with the replacement of Judas, no matter how you look at it, it is not the apostles passing down their office to another non-apostle, but rather it is the actual replacement of an apostle which the official catechism of the Catholic Church is careful to point out that this is not at all what it sees apostolic succession to be. The Catholic Church would not claim that their bishops become actual apostles, like Judas's replacement Matthias in this passage did. They would only say that they hold the office and power of the apostle left vacant by their deaths. But this is a passage describing something totally different. This is the replacement of an apostle, not a passing on of an office. And not only that, but a replacement that the Old Testament itself called for specifically through prophecy. No matter how you crack it, this is not an example of apostolic succession. In summary, before moving on, this passage goes to pains to show that it pertains to a very unique situation with Judas, whose betrayal of Jesus and replacement were prophesied in the Old Testament. This is actually an account of the final prophecy of Judas, his replacement, being fulfilled. And it is an example of replacing a real apostle with another apostle, which is not a part of Catholic doctrine in the first place. They had not even been given power to give at this point, and foundations do not get succeeded or replaced. They get built upon. And finally, the reason that the ancient psalmist prophesied may another take his office is to fulfill the prophetic model of the foundational twelve tribes for the Old Covenant with the foundational twelve apostles in the New Covenant. Let us move on to another verse that is used as evidence of the apostles handing down apostolic authority. It can be found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. It says, And what you heard from me through many witnesses... Entrust to faithful people who will have the ability to teach others as well. This is taken by the Catholic Church to mean that Paul meant for Timothy to pass on apostle power to these men that had the ability to teach. Does this passage give us any reason to believe that the teachers in view here would themselves in their persons possess the same kind of authority as did the apostles? It seems clear that he's talking about teachings or knowledge here and not his authority as an apostle. And this can be seen in three ways. The first is that he uses the phrase, heard from me. This is exactly what you would expect if he were talking about teachings or knowledge, but not at all what you would expect if he was supposed to mean his apostolic authority. In that case, he might say, what you received from me, or what you obtained from me. But never in a million years would you say, what you heard from me, if what you meant was, apostolic power. The second thing is the context. He wants Timothy to pass this on to those that can teach. It makes crystal clear sense if what he wanted to give the teachers was teachings, because they would be the best ones to teach teachings to others. 
That is because they know how to teach. It's perfectly logical. The fact that Paul was speaking of his teachings being passed down here and not his special apostolic authority is made plain as you read through Paul's letters to Timothy where you will find this exact same idea repeated in different ways which are far less ambiguous. For example, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 and 11, it says, If you will give these instructions to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of the faith and the sound teaching you have followed. Command and teach these things. In his second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, Take as your norm the sound words that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard this rich trust with the help of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, it says, Attend to yourself and to your teaching. Preserve in both tasks, for by doing so you will save both yourself and those who listen to you. And in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17, it says, But you remain faithful to what you have learned and believe, because you know from whom you have learned it, and that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are capable of giving you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that one who belongs to God may be completed and equipped for every good work. A Catholic may hear these verses and think to themselves, how can just a teaching being passed down bring people to salvation? But the power lies in the transmission of the teaching of the gospel, which is that God has put all the punishment for your sin on his own Son, and that Christ willingly took on the justified wrath of God that was due for our sins to satisfy the debt that we owed, so that now, if we repent and believe in this gospel, we can be viewed by God as forgiven once and for all, and we can have eternal life. And not only that, but if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, and his old ways will pass away, and all the things will become new, because God reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their sins to them. You see, this is the message itself that transmits the power. It's like it said in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So again, the Catholic interpretation of this verse is not logical. Number one, quote, What you heard from me is not at all what you would say if you were talking about a power. Number two, that he wanted what was heard from him to be given to those that could teach strongly builds the case that he was talking about a teaching and not a power. Number three, all the other almost identical verses in the letters to Timothy, which make very clear that Paul was talking about teachings, are the final nail in the coffin for this verse. I will move on to the final Bible verses that are commonly used to support apostolic succession. First is Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, so that you might set right what remains to be done and appoint presbyters in every town as I directed you. There are a few other verses that are often used, but this verse will give me an opportunity to refute them all at the same time. There are some that try to make cases for apostolic succession by claiming that the word here, presbyters, 
And another word, also used in the book, two verses later in verse 7, episkopos, which means overseer or bishop, are very distinct words and totally different things. And there are certain cases for apostolic succession, although not very strong ones, that can be made from an argument like that. Thankfully, that one is very easy to demonstrate to be false. All you have to do is to go to catholic.com, where they do my job for me, and say the following. The New Testament appears to use the terms bishop, episkopos, and priest, presbyteros, interchangeably. Acts 20, verse 17, compared with Acts 20, verse 28, and Titus 1, verses 5 through 7. It also speaks of there being more than one bishop in a given church, in Philemon 1, verse 1. From the end of the first century onward, there appears to have been only one bishop. And you can look up these verses that are being cited here by Catholic.com and see that indeed these words are used interchangeably. And this is coming from Catholic.com, who I assure you would not admit this if they didn't have to. I also like this quote because what Catholic.com is essentially saying is that the version of the church government they envision did not exist within the pages of the Bible. And in fact, they are admitting that the earliest churches had a more or less Protestant structure and government. But back to this verse in Titus. No matter what presbyter means, one thing is clear. This verse, which is telling Titus to appoint presbyters, which literally means elder or senior, in every town, it does not give us any reason to think that in addition to appointing these elders, which was common and did not require an apostle to do, that he was also passing on apostle power. It's just not there. In addition, if it was the case, surely Paul would have mentioned it. After all, three books of the Bible are dedicated to requirements of ordaining these men, and not a single verse mentioning any of this. And in fact, much of what is said directly refutes the idea of apostolic succession, which I will get into right after this last point. Laying on of hands. This is sometimes brought up by apostolic succession folks, so I don't want to conclude this section without mentioning it. It is known that the Catholic Church believes that it is through the laying on of hands the apostle power is passed down from generation to generation. The idea of laying on of hands to receive spiritual gifts is totally biblical, and I could find many verses supporting it, and I agree 100% with its practice. I myself have had spiritual gifts passed to me through the laying on of hands, but what I very much disagree with is the belief that this must be done by a person who has had an unbroken chain from the apostles. That is not true, nor is it in the Bible. A good example is with Paul himself, who is supposed to be the apostle power source for both Titus and Timothy. Well, whether you think his ordination was in Acts 9, verse 17, when he was saved, or in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, when he was ordained for his missionary work, in either case he had hands laid on him, and none of the people laying on the hands were either apostles or even bishops. I think of all the verses that refute the idea that unless someone is a part of the apostles' line of succession, then you are not with the church, the most severe is found in Mark 9, verses 38 through 40. It says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow us. Jesus replied, Do not prevent him. There is no one who performs a mighty deed in my name who can at the same time speak ill of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. 
Apparently, the apostles had tried to stop another man, who was unknown to them, from carrying the message of Jesus to others. In his quick retort to them, Jesus effectively told the apostles that they themselves would have no private ownership of the gospel, nor exclusive rights to his power, but rather that it would be open and accessible to all, even this lay person that had no connection whatsoever to them, but who had apparently come to a relationship with Jesus separately, perhaps by listening to his sermons. But in any case, we know that he had the same power that the apostles did, because he was able to cast out demons. John, and maybe the other apostles, had possibly somehow carelessly assumed that they, the apostles, had to be the source for all the power of Christ. But the retort of Jesus started to reveal that things would not be panning out quite in that manner. Jesus strongly indicates that no future institutional Christian structure of men could ever claim exclusive ownership of the gospel message or its power. If such a structure should do so, it would be without divine authority. This verse is absolutely devastating to the Catholic Church as a whole. And if it is true, then many dogmatic statements of the Church are not. As I did research for this project, I noticed that there were a handful of common questions that Catholics would ask when trying to understand how apostolic succession could be a false doctrine. I will list a few and try to answer them. Number one, when and why did apostolic succession stop? This question, I hope, is answered by this point in the presentation. Apostolic succession never started. There is not a shred of evidence showing that the apostles themselves believed that the specific apostolic power that they had needed to be passed down. And so their particular power stopped with the death of the last apostle. Number two, if there is no central authority, then it would be total chaos. Even the heretics try to use the Bible to prove their points. Now, I'm no fan of denominations, but most of them disagree on very small issues like whether there should be a board of elders or multiple overseers. The doctrines are very, very close and almost never heretical. And when there is a grievous error in one of them doctrinally, it is almost always due to liberalism in their interpretation of the Bible. That is, when people err, it is not because they are reading the Bible for what it plainly says. The error comes when they try to go away from its plain meaning to support their personal views. But in any case, the real answer to this question will be answered with the next one. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If Jesus left us without leadership, then he lied. Did Jesus abandon us? Christ had no intention to abandon us. In fact, he had a genius plan to be with us always, even though he would not be here bodily. A plan a million times better than apostolic succession. A plan that would keep the church together and teach them all things and protect them from the very gates of hell. Jesus begins to explain his plan in John 14. It says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, to be with you always, the Spirit of truth, which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it, but you know it because it remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live and you will live. On that day you will realize that I am in the Father and the Father, and you are in me and I in you. 
Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit here, and two chapters later, he gives us even more detail of this plan. In John 16, verses 6 through 9 and 12 through 14, it says, But now I am going to the one who sent me, and not one of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I told you this, grief has filled your hearts. But I tell you the truth, it is better for you that I go. For if I do not go, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and condemnation. Sin because they do not believe me. I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. But when he comes, the Spirit of Truth, he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears and will declare to you the things that are coming. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Christ plainly says that it is the Holy Spirit that is inside us that would do all the things that the Catholic Church now claims we need it to do. Let me read a few verses and see if you can see what I mean. For instance, the Holy Spirit teaches correct doctrine. Like in the verse we just read, where it says, But when he comes to you, the Spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears, and will declare to you all the things that are coming. He will glorify me, because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Also in Luke 12, verse 11, it says, for the Holy Ghost, or Verse 12, For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Also in John 14, verse 26, Or in the famous prophecy in the Old Testament, about how in the New Covenant, God would be able to put His Spirit in people's hearts, and they would not need to be taught by men anymore. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The Holy Spirit protects us from the gates of hell, because if we have it, we have authority over all demons, like we saw earlier with that guy that the apostles didn't know, who still had a power uh, to cast out demons. We see this, of course, in Luke ten nineteen. We see that it is the Spirit that empowers us to cast out demons. In Matthew 12, verse 28, we see so many references to the authority over all spirits as snakes and scorpions, and that the spirits are subject unto us all over the Bible. We see that the Holy Spirit is the one that is ordaining people for the ministry in Acts 13, verse 2. It forbids certain things in Acts 16, verse 6. It reproves the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment in John 16, verse 8. The Holy Spirit is the one that's supposed to make intercession for us in Romans 8, verse 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit is the plan that Christ had to be with us till the end of the world. He is the one that came in place of Christ. That is why Christ said, It is better for you that I go, for if I do not go, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word vicar means in place of. The Pope claims to be the vicar of Christ, or in place of Christ. But that title is rightfully the Holy Spirit's.
I know it's hard to believe that the Holy Spirit can really keep it all together, but I think that is a position that comes only from a lack of faith that the Holy Spirit is real or has any power. Just like Jesus said, many in the world will not benefit from it because they cannot accept it. He said, The Spirit of truth, which the world cannot accept, because it neither sees nor knows it. I can tell you that the Holy Spirit is real, and he does write his law on your heart, like he said, and he gives you a new life where you no longer desire sin, but desire him instead. It's a life filled with power and love and freedom and forgiveness. And if you want to learn more about what the Bible says about this life, see my videos of Catholic testimonies, or my video called A Guide for New Christians, where I explain all this in great detail. In conclusion, I hope to have demonstrated that without apostolic succession, the Catholic Church is at best just another denomination, and one with a particularly strange interpretation of the Bible, I might add. Without apostolic succession, it has no power to give to affect things like the sacraments, because the power they say they have was never intended to be passed down in the first place, and there is no record anywhere in the Bible of it having been done. And the Bible verses that they say prove otherwise are not even relevant to this issue. In fact, of all the doctrines that the Catholic Church holds that they claim biblical support for, this one may be the weakest, which is amazing considering how without it the Catholic Church, in the sense that they think of it, does not exist. But Jesus said, You nullify the word of God in favor of your tradition that you have handed on, and you do many such things. Please watch the two-hour video of Catholic Testimonies to see more information like this.